live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. Hi, I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Noor Menninger. Ayn Rand. As I say that name, half of you are thinking about Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged and how much it changed your life. And the other half has already stopped listening. But regardless of your views, it's undeniable that as a philosopher, Rand has left an enduring mark on the world. Her philosophy of objectivism preaches something called rational self-interest, which maintains that as individuals, we are innately selfish beings, and that selfishness, however counterintuitive this might sound at first, should be the highest level of our morality. Sacrifice, in her opinion, is evil. But before we mislead you any more about the philosophy of Ayn Rand, let us introduce Dr. Yaron Brook. Dr. Brook is a former academic and currently serves as the director of the Ayn Rand Institute in Irvine, California. He joins us today to talk about Ayn Rand, her life, and her philosophy. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. And of course, we want to hear your feedback. So let us know what you think in the comments or send us a message on Facebook. Hi, hi Dr. Wolk. Hi, thanks for having me Hello, on. Hello and good. welcome to Israel. Thanks, it's good to be here. Not the first time. No, <laughs> no. I grew up here. I yeah. grew up here. And I, I, ca- I come at least once a year. So, Dr. Brooke, could you please um, do the pitch that you know already by heart sure. and tell us about Ayn Rand? Well, first, let me say, let me correct something you said. She did not believe self-interest is innate in people. Uh, she believed self-interest is something to ach- be achieved. She believed uh, self-interest was indeed an achievement. And we could talk about that, that, that indeed in, we're not born with much innate in us and that we must discover what is good for us, what is bad for us, what is right, what is wrong. Those are all things to be discovered by the use of human reason. So she was very much against this uh, notion that everybody's selfish anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, she believed that selfishness, the way she understood it, rational long-term self-interest, was a- an immense human achievement that required a lot of work and a lot of thinking uh, and uh, and that most people never lived self-interested life. Indeed, most people live self-destructive lives. But we can get to that. Ayn Rand, uh, just, just quickly about her life. I mean, Ayn Rand was born, Alicia Rosenblum, in Baum. Sorry, I keep doing that. Rosenbaum in, uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, 1905, uh, to a middle-class Jewish family. Her, her father owned a pharmacy mm-hmm. uh, in the main square in St. Petersburg. Uh, so she witnessed the Rus- Russian Revolution. When it happened, she, she lived under communism. Uh, she experienced what communism did to people. Uh, she was uh, at, a un- at university during the, 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 the final years in the Soviet Union. It became obvious to her and to really everybody that if she stayed in the Soviet Union, she'd be killed. Uh, she couldn't keep a mouth shut. She was an individualist. She, she had a strong point of view, uh, which was anti-communist, very much anti-communist, and uh, she would not have survived the system uh, under Lenin or Stalin. So uh, there was a short window of opportunity to get out of the Soviet Union in the, um, in the late 1920s. She was 22. In 1927, she, she takes advantage of this opportunity. Lenin allows for a short period of time people to go out for educational purposes. So she gets out and she gets to the United States basically with nothing. She's all alone. Uh, you know, her family knows she'll never come back. Uh, and uh, she shows up. 
she spends some time with family in Chicago, but ultimately she shows up in Hollywood with a letter of introduction to the Cecil B. DeMille studio. Although you guys probably have no idea who Cecil B. Of DeMille is. Of course, we are two, we are film students. Oh, you're a film student. So, well, yeah. you know, the amazing thing, my son was a film student, and the amazing thing was so many of his classmates had no idea who Cecil B. DeMille was. Really? The, the history of film is not something We had the great history of film teachers, so... Good, good. Well, Cecil B. DeMille obviously was the Steven Spielberg of, or more than Steven Spielberg, really, of, of his time. So she shows up to the studios there, hands them a letter of introduction, and they say, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. She walks out of the out of the building, and there is Cecil B. DeMille sitting in a massive convertible, driving by, and this little Russian woman, young Russian woman, she stares at him, and he stops the car, and he says, "You know why are you staring?" And she says, "I'm I'm here from Russia. I want to get into the movie business. I want to I want to be a writer." And she's got this heavy Russian accent, of course. And Just he says, "To her last day, she had it. She had it throughout. She could never get rid of it." Um, <laughs> And uh, he says, get in the car, and, and she does, and he takes her to the uh, back lot where they're filming The King of Kings, the story of Jesus Christ of all, all stories, and he says, here's a pass. You can come and go as you wish. Um, if you want to be in the movie business, you better know how movies are made, and uh, that was the beginning of her career, and she basically worked as an extra, worked in the wardrobe department, worked in anything she could to make a living. She met her f- husband uh, on the set of The King of Kings, and... Um, ultimately got married and that's how she became a u.s citizen and she worked at nights on her english writing 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 uh learning english and and by the early 1930s she was writing a book called we the living which is kind of the closest she came to an autobiography which is a book about life in the soviet union about about uh, a young girl about her age and what happens to mm-hmm. what happens psychologically and and materially um spiritually to to a person under under communism and the critics hated it, right? This is the 1930s. American intellectuals are enamored with communism. They think communism is the future. They don't want to hear a story about So they slam it. It doesn't do very well. In the meantime, she also writes a very short novel, novelette called Anthem, which is a, a dystopian short story. Um, and she can't get it published in the U.S. And it gets published in the U.K., in England, where there is interest in dystopian novels, just a couple of years before 1984. And, and uh, you know, it, it's quite the possible... Book. Quite possible, yes, the book. Quite possible that uh, George Orwell read Anthem before he wrote 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's, there's some suggestions that that happened. Now, is she developing her philosophy <coughs> like simultaneous to these writings? or She is. So you can see uh, each one of her books, and we'll get to that, kind of is, is a more explicit articulation. But in many respects, I think she said that the fundamentals of her philosophy she had when she was a kid, right? She mm-hmm. and, and what did she say her philosophy was? She said... Philosophy was, you know, what she wanted to do in her in her novels was to portray the ideal man, and the philosophy was a philosophy to portray man as a heroic being, or to understand man as a heroic being, and that's really the thread, and and that she got did, and what she discovered as she was writing her novels, is that that to to figure out what the ideal man was and what heroism was and what what a heroic human being really the full potential of a human being was. As she studied philosophy, she looked around for knowledge about what other thinkers thought about that. Mm-hmm. She discovered that nobody had a comprehensive view of that, and nobody had an even close view of that that she could identify with. It wasn't her type of hero. Every time she saw what a philosopher, another novelist, or somebody it else was a had contempt, written, in a contempt sense. for men, absolutely. For men. I mean, really, the German Romantic tradition is a contempt, and then you get to Nietzsche, where, where yes, he has heroes, but the heroes have to be above men right they have to be super beings they have right. to be above morality and she was like 
I, I like kind of the sense of life of, or the sense of heroism and a strong and, and, and will. But Nietzsche is all about emotion, about will, and he's all about, about violence and about being above other human beings. And, and that she could never tolerate. She could never understand. She wanted something more down to earth. She wanted something down to earth that would apply to, to, to everybody. She, she believed that everybody has the heroic in, her, in them, that everybody has the capacity to be moral and to be great within their scope. It doesn't mean that everybody's the same. It just means that when you make the most of your life, that's what heroism is. When you live your life to the utmost, now, that's how, what life is how about. How did uh, her her coming to the States and being familiarized for the first time with the American dream, et cetera, et cetera, did that also influence her? Well, it did, but, but much of, of her time in the U.S. was a disappointment because she left communism only to arrive in the U.S. when communism was cool. In the in in among intellectuals, right. so she was like, "Do you guys know what you're talking about?" You know, this was shocking to her. And then, uh, as she wrote her novels, she discovered how, in one way, unintellectual Americans were, in another way, how already corrupt American culture was had been corrupted by the same kind of uh, intellectual tradition, German, really European intellectual tradition, yes. that had already corrupted Europe. So she was. She was distressed about America. Remember, she also came and immediately there was a Great Depression. Immediately, FDR brings in all the statist, socialist kind of policies that had that she she was she thought were terrible and she thought were bad. Even though she she voted for FDR in the first uh, first election, she voted for FDR because he promised to get rid of rid of uh, prohibition. Mm-hmm. She was very much against prohibition, not because she was a drinker, but because of the principle of telling people they couldn't drink, she thought was absurd. Mm-hmm. But she later, of course, never voted for FDR. He proved to be the socialist that he was. And and uh, and when does she write The Fountainhead? So The Fountainhead, uh, she's writing... So in the meantime, she's writing these books. She also has a couple of plays that get produced in, on, uh, in, um, in Hollywood and then in Broadway. And then she starts writing uh, The Fountainhead, and she, she finishes it in 1945. In the process, 12 publishers turned the book down. And the 13th publisher finally accepts the book, but only prints uh, a couple of thousand copies. Uh, but Fountainhead becomes a bestseller almost instantly from word of mouth. There's no publicity. There's no effort from the publisher to market the book. It's too philosophical, she's told. But it becomes an, a, a bestseller, and the publisher has to immediately make more runs and immediately print. And, and, you know, you could argue that to this day it's a bestseller. That is, to this yeah. day it sells, what's it, uh, uh, 70 years later, 72 years later, it is selling almost as many copies as it did when it first came out. So it's it's well well over 100,000 copies, which is stunning. No other book, I mean, no other author has the kind of longevity she does, uh, she has had, unless you're kind of in the curriculum of the universities, right? Yeah. If you're Mark talk. Twain or if you're uh, Scott F. Fitzgerald and the universities are buying it because that's what the students are studying. But for an author who has to sell through the bookstores, who doesn't sell through, she is by far the most long-lived, you know, uh, consistent uh, uh, author out there. Now not to mention, sorry, not to mention the influence of the architecture. And when you walk a- around the city, you may also glance and see the influence of the fountainhead, right? Uh, uh, yes. I mean, there's no, I mean, I don't know that it's a direct influence because they're also influenced by, by people like Frank Lloyd Wright and, and other modernist architects. But I don't know very many renowned architects in the world who have not read The Fountainhead, who don't don't admire The Fountainhead, whether they agree with philosophically or not. They're inspired by it. So yes, I think much of modern architecture is inspired by The Fountainhead, by the character of The Fountainhead. Many many architects are inspired by it. Um, 
in in particularly in places where you see people really experimenting and, and really pushing the envelope with architecture. You don't see that. You see a little bit of that in Israel. Um, but where you're really seeing it today is in, in China, of all places, is where the boundaries of architecture are really being pushed and, and exciting stuff is being built. So, so is this her manifesto, the Fountainhead, or did she actually have an, a, like a, a, something that articulated the the basics of of objectivism? No, so none of her novels she considered manifestos. They were novels. They were stories, and and she wants she wanted very much people to view them as that. They were she, her goal in writing was to portray the ideal man, and the Fountainhead is her first real attempt to do it. Howard Rourke, the hero of it, is is who. Representation of the ideal man. Now, if you read the Fountainhead, it's full of her ethical theory. I mean, you mm-hmm. can see what she means by having integrity, right? Howard Rock walks away from money in order to sustain his in- artistic integrity. He sacrifices to, everything. Well, basically. he doesn't sacrifice because he's not. You know, she's against the word sacrifice okay. because <laughs> he because to him his integrity is more important than money, right? That's not sacrifice. Integrity is more important than money, and he goes and works in a quarry. You he know, pays what, a big price. Let's yes. Say. Yeah. But that's but but he would view it as an investment, right. which pays off in the end because yes. it, and and but selling your soul, it's a choice. It's a, yeah. everything is a choice. Which, which she really held as something that was as a high value, as opposed to determinism. Or yeah, she's very much man. opposed to determinism. She's very she's she's a free will. And she believes that you know morality necessitates choice. Otherwise, if you're determined, what what makes it moral or immoral? You're just doing what you're programmed to do. I right? I don't get the whole Sam Harris and other kind of deterministic view, and then they write books on morality as if morality can exist without free will. If you don't have a choice, then there is no morality. There's no good and evil. There just is. It, it, what, what is, is, and, and, and you, you're, not, you're not in charge of yourself. So she very much believed in free will. Howard Rourke makes choices. He makes choices that are painful sometimes, but we all make choices that are painful. But it's a sacrifice only when... In the overall picture, it's a net loss to you. That is, if you're giving up something and not getting something in return. What Rourke is, gi- is giving up is money. What he's getting in return is his integrity. Integrity is a much higher value, much more important thing than money is. To him? Well, to him, and she would say objectively. Okay. She would say to everybody. She would say that the person who gives that integrity for money, which is Peter Keating in The Fountainhead, she has a character, is selling his soul and you'll pay the price and you'll live a miserable, pathetic life. So she believes that they are certain objective requirements for living a human life. That if you don't abide by those particular requirements, you will not live a flourishing, successful, happy life. You will be you will live a miserable life. Yeah. And and integrity is one of those. I mean she has seven virtues and she believes that those are virtues that are right for every human being. What are they? Well so so the the main virtue, the most important one, if you had to boil down her entire morality one would, would be rationality, to, to think. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, thinking is the way we know about the world. Thinking is the way we should make decisions about the world. Uh, every every choice that we make should be made thoughtfully, rationally, by by looking at the evidence, by examining evidence, fact based, not emotion based. Very scientific. Very much scientific, but scientific is applied to every decision we make. Mm-hmm. So, applying the kind of that scientific method in terms of you know looking at the world, identifying facts, what's real, what's what's not so real, what's a probability, what's a what's a certainty. That is the methodology by which we should make all important decisions in our life. And then the question is, how do you apply rationality to let's say um, your relationship with other people? Which you would say that's the virtue of justice. You treat, you treat people the way they deserve to be treated. You treat people by, based on their nature. Are they, are they good people? Are they bad people? Are they 
people who contribute values or the people who destroy values and, and, and they should be treated accordingly. So, you know, just apply to business. You, you pay people based on how productive they are. That, that's justice. That's fair. That's moral. Uh, paying people more than they deserve based on their productivity is unjust. Pay, paying people less than they deserve based on their productivity is unjust. So justice requires that you treat people the way they deserve. Uh, and so that's uh, justice. Integrity is sticking to what you believe, is, is living by your explicit virtues, not just mouthing it, but doing it, living it, experiencing it. So thinking, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's tough, even when you have to leave a pile of money on the table and walk away, that's integrity. Honesty, if, if, if thinking is the most important thing you have, then what you want to feed your machine that does the thinking are facts, not lies. Lies are distortions, they, 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 they are anti-facts, they disrupt the functioning of the human mind, and therefore the, you know, people who lie uh, are destroying be themselves. turning over in her grave today with all the uh, well, I mean, alternate facts that are Well, the, the idea of a post-truth era yeah. would be her idea of the end of the world. So she, she would view this particularly developed. Now, now, it's been developing for a while, right? This is postmodernism which has been around for probably 20 years, mm. but it's now finally reached kind of cultural consciousness. It's, it's really reached everybody and politics, of course. But the idea of post-truth, yeah, would, would, would to her symbolize kind of the end of Western civilization. And, and to a large extent, I think that is what it symbolizes. Whether we can recover from the post-truth era is going to be interesting. Um, what else? Productiveness. So you have to take responsibility for your own life in terms of supplying the material needs of your own life. So you have to apply apply your mind to produce and to create the material well be your material well being. Uh, so uh, so have a career. Take your career seriously. Uh, don't just don't just have jobs. Have you know figure out what you really want to do. Have a purpose in life. Purpose is a big value. Fine, man. And then I think finally, I think we I think we did six. Oh no, independence. Uh, you can only think for yourself. Nobody else can think for you. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, take take on the responsibility for thinking of yourself. Be independent. Be an independent thinker. doesn't mean you can't agree with other people. Can't, certainly doesn't mean you don't learn from other people. But at the end of the day, it's your mind has to come to the conclusions and only you can decide what's good for you and, and, and how to, how to, how to uh, uh, act and, and what decisions to make. And then finally, uh, pride. So uh, she believed pride was a virtue, like Aristotle did. Aristotle believed pride was the queen of the virtues. And pride to her was taking your life seriously, taking morality seriously, trying to be the best human being you could be, uh, which means uh, striving for moral perfection, you know, taking the other six virtues and all the virtues seriously, applying them in your life, and, and taking your life. You know, really, you know, people live lives, and they just live. They, they kind of drift through life. They, you, you watch them, and... You go, you know, what's the point, right? Have you really, do you realize you got one shot at this? Are you mm -hmm. making the most of it? Yeah. And and who of you as you got to, you know, if you're going to live, you got to live, right? You got to live with a capital L. And that that was for her what pride meant, was taking your life seriously. And the reward for pride, the reward for taking your life seriously was self-esteem. Self-esteem was is the sense of belonging on this earth. And, and self-esteem is a requirement for happiness. So you can't be happy unless you have self-esteem. You can't have self-esteem unless you have pride, unless you live a good, fulfilling, focused, flourishing life. And she has all that figured out as she writes The Fountainhead already, or uh, gradually it develops? Gradually it develops. So she, Fountainhead, she's still grappling with it, and you can see some of the writing she's doing on the side. She, we've published her journal, so we can see her kind of working it through. It, the book that really where she, she articulates the whole theory, or at least the beginnings of the whole theory, is Alice Shrugged. 
By the time she finishes Atlas Shrugged, her philosophy is pretty much developed. 13 years, right? She a, wrote. Uh, yeah, she, she finished Fontenet in, in uh, 45. She published uh, Atlas Shrugged in 57. By this point, of course, the publishers are competing to see who will publish the book because uh, Fontenet did so well, and Atlas Shrugged is even a bigger success than Fontenet in terms of sales. And, uh, and it's a massive book, and, and, and it did phenomenally well. The critics hated it. But the public loved it and loves it to this day. Uh, it, it, sells, it sells fantastically. It's been translated into almost every language on the planet. But, you know, by then, by the time she's finished as Alice Shrugged, she's got the philosophy articulated. There's a famous speech that most people, I think many people skip, a gold speech towards the end of the book, uh, which is about 70 pages, if I remember right. And, uh, you know, that is really a presentation of a philosophy, nuts and bolts and the whole thing. Now, it's not a, a complete development of philosophy. You can't do that in 70 pages in the middle of a novel. But it's the base, all the ideas are basically there. She then, after Atlas Shrugged, she goes on to write a lot of nonfiction essays, philosophical essays, current event essays, cultural commentary essays. And those are put into books. So you've got now books called The Virtue of Selfishness, which articulates all the, the various essays she wrote about ethics, where this idea of the seven virtues and the three cardinal values is developed really uh, developed thoroughly. She, you know, within that book, there are other essays about how to apply the ethics. For example, she she tackles the issue of is selfishness innate mm -hmm. in that book and, and with the conclusion that it's not. Um, and then there's a book called Capitalism, Not an Ideal, which is really a political philosophy and, and kind of the history of capitalism and, uh, and articulation of, of the different issues related to capitalism. And then, and then she writes a lot of cultural commentary, cultural commentary that if you read today, is stunning because it, it's so relevant to what's going on today. So, so the the thing people find when they read Ayn Rand is they go, "Oh my God!" You know, everything she writes about is happening. Yeah, uh, Atlas Shrugged is happening around us, and and uh, the cultural commentary she wrote is happening around us. In a sense, she predicted a post-truth era. In a sense, she predicted kind of a Donald Trump kind of populism. She she saw it as an inevitable, logical consequence of the kind of philosophical movements of the time. How so? How so? Well, I mean, if um, if you take Kantian philosophy seriously, uh, and uh, and Kant is basically divorcing human reason from reality and saying that, that the human mind is a filter that 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 uh, shapes what we see out there, that we're not seeing the real thing, that it's mm -hmm. it's it's being shaped. Uh, now, Kant says, well, we all have the same mind, so it's all being the shape, shaped the same way. We all have the same categorical imperatives, which are basically mystical principles that, that, that don't really mean anything, but they're there somehow. Well, that starts breaking up, right, as the philosophers move through the decades to the point where, well, we each have our own categorical imperatives. We each have our own minds, so we're each seeing different things. So reality is not reality. It, it, it's whatever we see in our mind. And my truth is not your truth because mm -hmm. you're seeing something completely different than what I am. My reason is my reason. Your reason is your reason. Reason is just a mind game anyway. It's not reflective of the real, real reality anyway. So what's the point? So we're all playing games in our own minds. So what's truth? There is no truth. What, you know, famously as Clinton, Bill Clinton said once, what is, is. Uh, nothing means anything. Postmodernism basically says nothing means anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she would say that's a direct consequence of Kantian, Kantian, Hegelian, Schopenhauer, kind of the whole, that whole German romantic tradition, which basically the whole goal of that tradition is to eviscerate human reason, to, to, to negate human reason, to make it irrelevant, uh, and basically to destroy the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is the era, the age of reason. It's the, it's the era of the individual 
And if we don't have minds that actually understand reality, that actually comprehend reality, then how do we know what to do? And if we don't know what to do, then somebody has to tell us what to do. And, and that's, that's what led to Hitler and, and communism. It leads to dictatorship. It leads to collectivism. It leads to the destruction of the self. It leads to the destruction of the individual. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we saw in the mid-20th century. I think that's what we're seeing again today. It's collectivism. It's racism. It's, it's tribalism. It's balkanization. She even wrote an essay in the 1960s about balkanization way before Yugoslavia was broken up. Right? In a mm-hmm. sense, she predicted the, the breakup of Yugoslavia because she understood that given the philosophy and the culture, we want to look for our little tribe and find safety in our little tribe. We want our little dictator to tell us what to do. And the thing that frees us from that was the enlightenment, was the discovery of the age of the human reason, was the discovery of science, was the discovery of objective truth, that reality is real. In a sense, a rediscovery of Aristotle's metaphysics and epistemology and even ethics you know, the Declaration of Independence in America says that we each have an inalienable right to pursue pursue happiness. Mm-hmm. That's very Aristotelian. That's very Ayn Rand. Um, and, uh, and and she saw, she saw all of that being destroyed during intellectually during the 19th and 20th century. And I think what we're living through today is, a, is just that. I think one of the, the qualms that people would have with objectivism and one of the things that I hear a lot of people say um, is you know this zero sum game kind of it it just doesn't it doesn't sit well maybe there you know it's not so much of a rational argument but when you say you know I judge the value of what I'm doing by the overall gain you know it's like what I gain versus what I lose so in that sense maybe you know you could say that if I am able to give as little as possible and get as much as possible is that the is that like the best scenario in Ayn Rand's world? If I can just give nothing but get everything? Well, I don't know. I don't even know what that means. I mean, uh, uh, I don't know what giving means and getting means in mm-hmm. this context, right? Um, Ayn Rand. I mean, the idea that the world is a zero-sum game is a ridiculous notion. It's a bogus notion. It's a one that Ayn Rand would reject thoroughly. She believed that the way human beings interact is through what she called the trader principle. We are traders. And traders give and get. That is that, that you give and you get in return. Now, what you get in return, it should be more than what you gave. Otherwise, why give it, right? Mm-hmm. But what the person on the other side is getting is more than he gave. Otherwise, why would he give it? So, but if I'm so, getting what he gives, how can I? You get what I'm saying? Well, then yeah. How am so, I getting- so, so I'm taking on my iPhone as I always do in my lectures. Uh huh. I pay six hundred bucks for this. How okay. much is it worth to me? Priceless. Yeah. Much more than six hundred. Yeah. Right. Much more than six hundred. How much is it worth to Apple? Less than six hundred. They're making yeah. a profit. Who lost? Nobody. I won, and Apple won. All human relationship, all trade. When you go buy a loaf of bread, mm-hmm. you're paying two dollars for the loaf of bread because the loaf of bread is worth more than two dollars to you. The, the 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 bakery doesn't. The bakery values the loaf of bread at less than two dollars because it's making a profit. So who lost? It's a win-win relationship. An idea in life according to Ayn Rand, is to create as many win-win relationships as you can. I mean, this is the most beautiful philosophy you could ever imagine. It's the exact opposite of, of, of the conventional morality, which is about sacrifice, lose. I lose, you win. Who the hell wants to live in that kind of world? Or we both lose. Or pain, suffering, that's virtue, that's good. No, mm-hmm. I'm saying we can create around us in all our relationship with our kids, with our spouse, with our with our trading partners, with our employees, with our suppliers, win-win relationships. And indeed, if we don't create win-win relationships, we lose. 
That is, if you if you have a a, a win lose relationship with your spouse, she's not going to stay with you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and supposedly you love her, so you want her to stay with you. So uh, if if you create win lose relationship with your employees, they will resign, they will leave, or they will lower their productivity because they hate your guts. So the idea that Ayn Rand stands for 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 losing relationships of a zero sum game is absurd. All the relationships, if you read her books, are all win win, either at the spiritual level, mm-hmm. like love. Or at the material level, like when we trade, when we go to the market, nobody is losing. When an entrepreneur starts a business, everybody wins. Mm-hmm. The employees win because he's paying them. The suppliers win because now they've got business they didn't have before. And if he comes up with a product that we all want, we all win because we get a product that didn't exist before. And we go, wow, how, how come I didn't think of yeah. that? So, uh, you know, what she is projecting is a world in which we're all win-win. Now, again, contrast that with the world in which we live in where... The government comes to me with a gun, sticks it at the back of my neck, and says, hand over half of your money. Yeah. I'm not winning there. I'm a net loser. now. And then it goes, and it's, it wastes most of it, and then it spends the rest of it. Maybe some on infrastructure, which I use. Maybe some of some other things that I use. But mostly on yeshivas. But what's that? Mostly to yeshivas here in Israel. In Israel, it goes to yeshivas, which <laughs> I obviously don't believe in. But it also goes it goes to redistributing wealth. If I want to help poor people, I'll help poor people. It's none of the government's business to tell me what to do now, with my money. Now, what incentive will you have to help poor people? In a, because she believes in this win-win yeah, so, force. So, so if so, I value them, yeah. I will give them money. If I don't value them, I won't. And some poor people I value and some poor, poor, poor people I won't. I don't. I think people who, because of hard luck, have, have lost something and, and potentially if I give the, if I help them would get back on their feet and become productive, productive people again, that's a value to me. Anybody out there working, producing, creating is a value to me, uh-huh. right? But if somebody is a wife-beating drunk, Right, mm-hmm. he he's getting zero dollars from me. He's getting nothing. I mean, I don't care how much he panhandles. He's yeah. not getting anything because he doesn't deserve anything. So, so my view is, who gets to make the decision for me on who I get to help? What the government does is it forces me to help people that it decides are worthy, like the shiva in Israel, which I don't want to help, right? Uh, or, or or some poor bum out there who doesn't deserve my help. It, 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 what what we should rely on is again these win win relationship where where people out of their benevolence, out of a, out of a caring for other human beings' life, when they have enough money to spare to help other people, help them. But I'm not I'm not obliged because I've made some money to help other people. That's mm-hmm. not an obligation I take on, right? I've never chosen that obligation, so I don't believe in you're born with an obligation to help the needy. If I choose to help them, and I and I would in the right circumstances with the right people, um, I will. But if I don't choose to help them, I don't. So that is kind of how her her <laughs> philosophy of objectivism rejects communism and ties into capitalism. No, I mean, it rejects communism. Uh, again, it, it rejects communism and ties into capitalism on a much more fundamental basis. And the fundamental basis is my life is mine to live. Your uh-huh. life is yours to live. Who the hell? And I don't care what political system it is. Uh-huh. Who the hell has a right to tell you how to live your life? Who the hell has to tell you who to have sex with? Who the hell has a right to tell you who to go to dinner with? Who the hell has a right to tell you what to do with your money? Who the hell has a right to tell you how much you should pay your employees or how much the employees sh- or, or your boss should pay you? You should be able to negotiate whatever rate you want. Who has a right to tell you how to live? And how to live means in every aspect of your life. As long as you are not hurting other people, as long as you're not using force on them, as long as you're not using fraud on them, who the hell has a right to tell you how to live? That's the bottom line. So, um, you know, we, are, we all have the capacity, and this is core to our philosophy. We all have the capacity to be rational. We all have the capacity to use our minds. 
We all have a capacity to discover the truth, and therefore we all have a capacity to choose our own life ourselves. Now, if you believe like Plato did, or like Kant did, that we don't have the capacity for reason, that we don't have a capacity to think for ourselves, that if you leave people free, they will screw up their lives, and everybody will be miserable and pathetic, and, and, and then you need, you need a boss. You need somebody to run your life, mm-hmm. and that's Plato's philosopher king, and that's Hitler or Stalin or, or the politicians in Jerusalem or in Washington, D.C., who believe that they have to tell us what to eat and what to drink and how much to eat and how much to drink and what drugs we can take and what drugs we can't take. And, and, uh, and in America, at least until recently, who we can sleep with and who we can't sleep with and, 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 here and who we can marry and who we can't marry. They still tr- do that in Jerusalem. But, but you know, for, with smoking, for example, uh, if we talk about that, let's take an example because it's very, we're very sure. you know, abstract. Sure. abstract. So sure. let's talk about marijuana. We had a Knesset member here, Tamar Zandberg, yeah. who is pro-legalization, uh, and I had an agreement with her. I said if the state legalizes a pot, okay, and people start smoking it on the street, and I am forced to passively smoke it, but, right? But you're not passively smoking marijuana. I mean, I am. In no, Tel- he's very sensitive. No. I am in Tel Aviv. <laughs> so I'm saying, where are the limits? Well, where then are the, walk across the street you... and walk on the other side of the street. I mean, the, the limits are if somebody's clearly doing stuff that is causing you damage, then you have recourse against that person. So if you truly are sensitive and somebody in your environment which is, is causing you uh, harm, then you have legal recourse against that person. But, you know, you know, mostly people can smoke marijuana and it doesn't affect anybody else. And if they want to, I mean, I think it's stupid. I think it's immoral. I think it's, it's ridiculous to smoke marijuana because it dulls your mind and I'm against anything that dulls your mind. But if somebody wants to be stupid, they have a right to be stupid. I'm not going to go into barricades to fight for drug legalization, although I think it's essential because, because if, we, if you believe people have a right to their own life, then they have a right to commit suicide. I believe taking drugs is suicide. Fine. But, but I take seriously the right to my own life. So not only marijuana. Why, why stick to a, a simple example? I believe heroin should be legal. I believe cocaine should be legal. I believe all of these drugs should be legal. They but then be those sold. people are getting hospitalized and you pay for their... Why? I don't believe in socialized medicine, right? You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't pay. They should pay. And, and if somebody's overdosing in heroin and doesn't have health insurance, then they've committed suicide. Okay. I mean, I'm, I have no problem with that. So again, it's a really, really stupid, immoral, dumb thing to do. And if, if those people pay the consequence of it, so be it. So you're happy with how the health system in the States looks like right now? No, of course not. It's way too government intervention. There's way too government involvement. Uh, before Obamacare, 51 cents of every uh, dollar spent on health care was spent by the government. Uh, they regulate to death the insurance companies. They regulate the doctors. They regulate the, the FDA regulates which drugs I can use. Uh, no, there's nothing about the American health system I like other than it's better than any other healthcare system. I wouldn't replace the American healthcare system as bad as it is, and it is With bad. ours, for example. Oh, never, never. I, 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 I you know, because Israel's praised for its oh, health no. system by socialists. My, my dad maybe. is a doctor here in Israel and has been his whole life. I, I wouldn't replace uh, the healthcare system that I have in the United States. I have insurance. I, I can afford insurance. I bought insurance. I have the best healthcare in the world by far. If I am worried about something, I can get an MRI in thirty minutes. You have to wait three weeks, even if. Three months. Sometimes three months, even if you might be having a brain aneurysm. I, I was much once, they thought I might be having a brain aneurysm. I got a, on the spot, I got an MRI. The next morning, I got a CT scan with color. Now, it turned out to be nothing. So in the, in, in when people look at that, when health economists, uh, you know, aggregate these numbers and you look at it and say, oh, what a waste. Your aunt got an MRI and a CT scan that he didn't need. 
because they came out negative. But I did need it. I wanted peace of mind that I wasn't having a brain aneurysm. And if I had a brain aneurysm, those would have saved my life. So the whole way in which we look at healthcare by aggregating costs and by, and by looking at it from the social ridiculous perspective is bogus and nonsense. But the fact is that if I am, I, if I am got cancer, if I've got heart disease, or if I've got a brain aneurysm, I better have no. insurance, good insurance in the States than no insurance in Israel. Yeah, but example. almost everybody has insurance in the United States. Again, there's this mythology that nobody has insurance. I mean, there are some people who don't have insurance in the United States, very few. Even they get treated. If they go to the emergency room, no emergency room can turn them away. All hospitals have charity wings that will treat them. The fact is that when you control for lifestyle choices that Americans make, for example, eating too much, particularly carbohydrates and sugars and all that garbage so that they're fat and obese and so on. If Not you can, strawberries like I served here. No, is, no, this is very healthy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you but if you control it. for lifetime choices, then uh, Americans are as healthy, if not healthier than other people. Then if you look at survivability rates from cancer, from heart disease, from real diseases, you don't want to be anywhere but the United States for most of those. If but our breast- life expectancy is higher than yours. Yeah, but, but uh, let me tell you, if you measure life expectancy of Israelis in America, it's higher than Israelis in Israel. Right. So there are certain ethnic groups in the United States that you, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about without appearing to be racist. So you have to be careful. But the certain ethnic groups in the you United States. You mean the Irish, States, obviously. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, no. I mean, at the end of the day, blacks and Hispanics have lower life expectancies than 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 other than than whites and Asians. And the reasons for that are complex. They have to do with socioeconomics. They have to do with diet. They have to do with a bunch of different things. But the fact is that if you look at Scandinavians in America, they live just as long as Scandinavians right. in Scandinavia. And if you look at Japanese in America, they live, you know, Japanese are the longest living of all of them. They live just as long as Japanese. So, no, I, I mean, I wouldn't really. I mean, I, I deal with the healthcare system because, you know, I get sick once in a while. Um, God forbid. God forbid. Well, if there was one, he would forbid. <laughs> um, I, uh, but. You know, I, I get the best treatment in the world. I can't imagine. And I and I had protectia here in Israel, right? I had I had an inroad because my father's a doctor here. I always got great treatment here. Yeah. I still prefer the treatment in, in, in the United States. So let's talk a little bit about defense. What about uh, gun rights and defense? I mean, if I in, am living in an objectivist world, in Ayn Rand's world, can I buy a tank, an F-16, uh, if I want to? So here I get in trouble with a lot of libertarians and some objectivists. No, I, I don't think so. I think the whole issue of force and therefore the whole issue of weapons whose function is force is something uh, is within the, the legitimate realm of government control. Um, and uh, now I, I, I believe you have a right to bear weapons for self-defense. I believe you have a right in what a weapon is for self-defense. One would have to you know clarify and I think legal scholars would do that. Ayn Rand was not for unlimited you could have whatever weapon you had. She, she viewed this as a complex legal issue that you'd have to figure out where the boundaries of what was uh, legitimate for an individual to own in his home that did not pose a threat to his neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I believe in, 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 uh, in, in gun rights, but I also believe that the government has a role to play in the context of gun rights. And where exactly the line is, I, I don't have a clear So she didn't believe in you know, full-on anarchy. She did believe that no. there should be a government. No, she very much believed that government was a necessary good, that you had to have government to live in a civilized society, but that the government's job was only police, military, and a judiciary to arbitrate disputes. So she believed that you had to have objective law and that the government's job was to define objective law, particularly with regard to what property rights are. Think, think about the Internet as, as the Internet grows there are new types of property being created. Like Facebook. 
Yeah, like Facebook. And it's dictatorship that now people complain about, but it's a private it's company private and property, they exactly. have their right to do whatever they want. So it's appropriate, you know, do we have, you know, who ha who owns our information, for example? I mean, they're interesting issues mm -hmm. with regard to private property, privacy, and so on that the internet creates. And the role of government would be just to focus on those. And instead of writing these ridiculous laws and ridiculous bills that these guys waste all of our money and resources and time on, if they just focused on those, then maybe we'd have some clarity. I, for example, believe that I own my information, that it's not Google's or Facebook's or whoever to do whatever they want with, and that, that we need to rethink how we, how we think about property rights when it comes to the internet, how we think about information. Now, I should be able to sell that information to Google, but it's mine. It's not Google's because, I, because I've signed up, they have everything on me. Uh, fundamentally, it's mine, and then they, they can use it under certain conditions. So, I, I mean, I think there's a whole world of legal thought that needs to be devoted to that, and that's exactly what government is not doing. I mean, I believe water should be private. I believe that the beaches should be private. I believe that, the, that, that uh, almost all... No, not sex. almost. All, well, sex should be... It's, you can't think of... Prostitution. Of, I refer to prostitution. Oh, prostitution should be legal. Absolutely. I think it should be legal. Again, as long as force is not being used, it should be legal. I think, again, prostitution is immoral. It's, it's, it's bad. But people have a right to do immoral bad things as long as they're not hurting other people. So sex... Uh, what is it? So the sex, sex trade. trafficking. In yeah. a sense, sex trafficking. Slavery of women. Forcing women to prostitute itself. Of course, that would be unbelievably illegal and, and that you should go to jail and from my you know my perspective throw away the keys but um rape should be illegal of course any use of force against another human being should be illegal but if somebody voluntarily truly voluntarily decides to prostitute herself or himself that's their business and if somebody wants to use a prostitute that's their business it's 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 none of the government's business so I, again i i think if we had this small government that specialized in defining property rights objectively and uh, thinking about foreign policy issues and thinking about defense issues and not having to deal with the millions of other things that a government does, I think we would live in a, you know, in a, in a, I mean, think about how wealthy we are today. We could be 10 times as wealthy. So we're two nice Jewish boys, so we have to ask this question. But uh, do you see any kind of overlapping between uh, objectivism and, I mean, Ayn Rand was originally Alicia Rosen. Bomb. 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 So any overlapping between objectivism and Jewish philosophy? I mean, not really. Uh, to the extent that Maimonides was an Aristotelian scholar and, and brought Aristotle's thinking into Judaism, there's certainly that remnant of respect for reason, respect for rationality, respect for learning, respect for knowledge that Ayn Rand has that is embedded deeply into her philosophy. She talked about her Judaism? No, I mean, she, she clearly roots. said she does not consider herself a Jew unless... She was very pro-Israel. Yeah, she was pro-Israel, but not because she was Jewish. But she said she was... She, 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 the only circumstances under which she would consider herself a Jew was in the face of anti-Semitism. So if somebody expressed an anti-Semitic view, she would make a point of, of making sure they knew she was Jewish. Because it's her free right to be a well because she Jew. so despised racism of yeah. any type and she so despised anti-semitism and and she would not tolerate it among people around her and if somebody thought she was on their side by expressing an anti-semitic view she would make it very clear to them how much she despised that and, and, and she would then announce that she was jewish just to you know in, in embarrass them and to take a stand clearly against their position so you think it was a coincidence that she was jewish and that um because Jewish yeah, I mean, and, and economic philosophy go a long way back together, right? Jewishness. And well, remember, Marx was Jewish. 
right? Yep, so, so, what, so what is Judaism? Is it communism or is it objectivism, right? So it's both, maybe. Well, no. I, well, it's everything. It yeah, reminds yeah. you of the of the of the two rabbis fighting about. Uh, well, yeah. So, so Jews dominate the intellectual high ground of the world, right? So. If there's a conspiracy theory out there of the elders of Zion, <laughs> it, it really is the Jews are just drawn to intellectual pursuits. So if you look at the left in America, the radical left in America, it's Jews. If you look at the old American Communist Party, who was it led by? Jews. If you look at the neoconservatives, who, who run the neo, well, mostly Jews. Jews if you look Catholics. at the Ayn Rand Center. If you look at the Ayn Rand Institute. Lots of Jews, yes, um, and and even a few Israelis. Uh, so the, the, every every if you look at universities in America and you look at who are the dominant professors, left, middle, you know, left, right, center doesn't matter. Jews, are, you know, if you look at the Nobel Prize winners in almost every category, maybe with the exception of literature um, and and peace, uh, so uh, dominated by Jews. <laughs> no, I mean the fact is the Jewish culture respects reason and thought. We and just need a, th- we need a quote for yeah. the ads. No, so you want you to get, say there's a, there's a conspiracy. Get, you're not going to get it. You're not get it. <laughs> but the fact is Jews uh, 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 respect. I mean, if anything, what Jews prove is that when you take reason and rationality seriously, there are no limits to your ability to achieve. Because here's a tiny little people that have been persecuted and been discriminated against and be trodden on by everybody for the last 2,000 plus years. And yet, more Nobel Prizes, more intellectuals, more everything among these people. Why? Now, some people say it's IQ or whatever, but, but really what it's about is it's about the fact that Jewish tradition respects the human mind. And, and at least since Maimonides, maybe even earlier from the... From the um, and survival of the unit of yourself. Yes, I mean, there's certain individualism, right? Imena Nili Mili is Hillel's famous uh, citation. And, and there's a certain respect for the individual built into Jewish culture. I don't think it necessarily comes from the Old Testament. I don't think the Old Testament is very useful generally. But, but it's certainly in the culture, in the... Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Talmud and other places. There's a respect for thinking, there's respect for analysis, there's respect for facts, and respect for the individual. And I think that respect is there, and that leads people to be extraordinary. And and this, to me, is is more support for what Ayn Rand claimed. So let's take that and, and wash away the mysticism, wash away the, the BS that's associated with Judaism, Let's focus in on the real good stuff mm-hmm. and then add to it a real philosophical foundation, which is, I think, Ayn Rand provides, and the potential of a human being, not just the Jew, but the human being per se, is unlimited because, because suddenly, you know, they are freed up. Other, you know, it's true. Other religions and other traditions don't value the mind like, the Jew, like, like Jewish tradition does, and I think that's a source of Jewish And also success. her life story, the, how she came to the state. It reminds of so many stories of people coming to Israel also. And, you know, one thing I don't think people uh, mention enough is how well-written the Fountainhead is, that her will to excel and to write in English better than oh. any, any English... Writer, absolutely, and and to me it's amazing. It's amazing. Because, every every page yeah. I encounter words that I never saw. Yes, and and and, uh, and it's beautifully written, and the characters are beautifully drawn out. I mean, one of the things that upset, it really stuns me, is when people criticize her for cardboard characters, or people criticize her writing. I think her writing is extraordinarily beautiful. I think if you think about um, Dominique in the Fountainhead, yeah, what the characters a, are perfect. What in an the book. interesting character. I mean, what a, a strange character, yeah. right? It's hard to understand yeah. her, and she's 
torn and she's not she cardboard is absurd uh or, or Reardon in in Atlas Shrugged who's, who's struggling with family and duty and 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 really changes through the book and has this arc in terms of his spiritual life and his moral life um so I, I find her writing stunningly beautiful I mean even Anthem which is the little book is beautifully written and, and quite striking. Mm-hmm. And it's not an accident that while the intellectuals snub their nose at Ayn Rand, uh, people, people in the hundreds of thousands, actually in, in a, we're now reaching tens of millions, have read her books, enjoyed the books. And you'll find more people saying that Ayn Rand changed my life than any other book out there. I mean, there's but, no other book that changes people's life other than, other than Ayn Rand. But Dr. Brooke, in the end of the day, yeah, have a strawberry. Go right ahead. Yes, um, so in the end of the day, one cannot deny that she failed. As you look at the states today, the, uh, many states of Europe, the Western world, right? The United States, Israel, all those countries are very highly regulated. Socialism is praised On the right. here in it. I don't On know the about rise. the states. Here in Israel, Bernie, soci- Sanders. It's in the Bernie Sanders. But here in Israel, if I say I like Ayn Rand, I might get stoned, specifically here in Tel Aviv. Socialism is still very, very cool. And capitalism, Ayn Rand, my, being selfishness. Is this an issue of marketing? Well, no. It's philosophy, and it takes a long time for philosophy to get absorbed in a culture. It's not something that happens quickly. Ayn Rand challenges at least 2,000 years of thinking. She challenges everything. She challenges the morality of Christianity, of the Judeo-Christian tradition. She challenges the epistemology of the German romantics. She challenges the politics of the last 200 years. Uh, and, 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 you know, with a, there's one little window where they agreed with her on politics, which is the Enlightenment and the founding of America. But other than that, nobody does. She turns the world upside down. And, and uh, for the world to absorb those ideas, to integrate them, to accept them, takes a long, long time. This is a multi-generational, multi-decades battle. I don't believe we'll see Ayn Rand's influence really in the culture on a massive scale for 50 to 100 years. But... So I agree with you in that sense, in the sense of a quick fix. And to some extent, she believed there would be a quick fix. She failed. Um, she wrote Atlas Shrugged. She said, so it wouldn't happen. But in many respects, it is happening. So in that sense, yes, she did fail. But I believe she will win in the end. Uh, and I see it I see it every day, right? So you say in Tel Aviv, but we just held on Wednesday. Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday. We held a, an event here in Tel Aviv, the Atlas Award for Best Startup in Israel. Uh, sponsored by the Ayn Rand Center, with a big sculpture of Atlas Shrugged uh, being given to people to the winner, and um, speakers who every one of them mentioned Ayn Rand positively, Americans and Israelis, and uh, it was covered by uh, one of the most you know it's co-sponsored by by a left-wing newspaper, right Haaretz through the Marker, which is the the financial publication. Yeah, I know, and I've <laughs> I've met now and 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 chatted with uh, the. Um, the, the owner of the marker, right? He doesn't like Ayn Rand, but he's willing to cooperate on this, right? So 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 she's making little inroads, and he doesn't hate her as much as Who some of it? these. Uh, Shokin. Uh, Amos Shokin. Amos yeah. Shokin. So he obviously doesn't hate it so much that he won't participate with us on this, like yeah. like would be interpreted. You know, Deloitte, the largest accounting firm in the world, was co-sponsor of the event with the Ayn Rand Center. So we had you had the Deloitte logo, you had the marker logo, and you had the Ayn Rand Center logo all there. You had 200 VIPs in a room. Uh, all these companies were very happy to accept the Atlas Award. Nobody said, oh, my God, it's Ayn Rand. I don't want to have anything to do with it. 
So even in Israeli culture, particularly I think in the high tech, go industry, to Rothschild Street and shout, "I like Ayn Rand," and see know. what happens. <laughs> well, you know, I do that, right? I gave, I, I did, the I do debate. it every day. And- I did a debate at a bar on uh, not on Rothschild Street, but close, right? On uh, when was it Monday? And I did the debate down in Beersheba on Tuesday. Uh, you know, it doesn't bother me. Yes, people, most of the people who hate Ayn Rand are people who haven't read her. Um, they're the ones who most hate her. But yes, it's going to take a long time for people to accept her. But you know what? I, this is the sixth country on this trip. I've got two more to go. Um, I spoke for a whole day. We did a seminar in Mongolia on Ayn Rand. 120 people showed up in the middle of a work week for a whole day to talk about Ayn Rand. I spoke in uh, Tokyo for a whole day. 50 people showed up. You were in China. I was in China where we did two and, mind blowing. two and a half days seminars. One in uh, half a day in Huangzhou, two full days in, in, in uh, Beijing, filled with scholars and entrepreneurs who came to listen to this, right? Uh, Korea, uh, where else was that? Mongolia, Hong Kong. There is interest. And, and yes. you know, in, in the fall, I'll be in, uh, in, I'll be in uh, Georgia and Ukraine and, and uh, in Bulgaria and Greece and everywhere in the world. Now, there's interest in her. Now, it, we're still tiny. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, that objectivism is taking over the world. It's not. But, you know, give me 50 years. Okay. I hope to be around. I hope to be around. We can, you, you know, you it. guys will definitely be around in 50 well, years. Well, you are a son of a doctor, so. I'm a son of a doctor. We'll have another episode. <laughs> I, live, I live, you know, unless, unless Trump slash Obama ruin healthcare in the United States completely, I expect to live to be 100. So, you know. Okay, so we wish we'll, you that. We'll have to come back and we'll review um, Ayn Rand's progress uh, uh, in, in 40, 50 years. We wish you to live up to more than 100. Um, we'll, I'll just tell you that we are cooperating with the Jewish Journal uh, of Greater Los Angeles and uh, Secret Tel Aviv, which is a Facebook group you got to sign into. Okay. Uh, it's a 150,000 people here in Tel Aviv, mostly Olim, who discuss about life here. It's fascinating. And so you guys cool. going to get banned from the Jewish Journal from the Facebook page because you've done a show on Ayn Rand? <laughs> Time will tell. Maybe no, I mean, I mean uh, uh, the Jewish Journal a few years ago ran a story comparing how it worked to uh, the state of Israel. Now, I think it was a little bit of a stretch, but, you know, a very positive story. Uh, Jewish Journal's run some positive story. D- has done interviews with me. So, uh, so I, you know, I generally think the hostility towards Ayn Rand is, is overstated and overrated. Yeah. Um, and I think that... Uh, that there is a real opening out there. And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings, like this mm-hmm. idea of selfishness being innate, or that selfishness being zero-sum game, or that selfishness the country being has screw- no role. screwing other people, or that she was for anarchy. Yeah. All of those are misconceptions. And, and at the end of the day, her, Ayn Rand's view of rational self-interest is a view of win-win relationships. It's a view of trading. And think about trading. Think about the fact that when you trade, even when you when you buy a car, you're better off. You, yeah, it, it hurts to give up the $20,000 or $40,000 or whatever it is. But you know what? You're doing the trade because you believe that the car is worth more than that to you. So um, mm-hmm. it's a win-win relationship. You, Dr. You, Rook, you both want. You have a podcast? I do. I do. It's the, How do we find it? Yeah, it's the Yaron Brook show. It's, okay. Uh, it's very easy. So uh, You have a Facebook page? I have a Facebook page. Why Brook? Why be okay? Uh, I have we'll a Twitter account, Yaron uh, Brook, yes. at Yaron Brook. Very good YouTube uh, videos. Tons of YouTube videos. Very I think, interesting. I think thousands you... now. So just, just put my name in and YouTube also, and you'll be flooded by stuff. Also, Ayn Rand has amazing interviews on YouTube. Yes, look up Ayn Rand. She's got a fabulous interview with Johnny Carson. It's mind-blowing. For those who remember <laughs> Johnny Carson, first of all, because Johnny Carson actually asked questions and was nice to his guests. <laughs> and and he, he, he stopped all his other guests and just ran with Ayn Rand because he was having such a good time. And uh, she's got some good interviews with Phil Donahue. And I must Mike say, Wallace. she has the qualities of a cult leader. 
<laughs> you know, as you watch her. She's got those eyes and she's got, but I yeah. don't. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so uh, obviously my following is not cultish because I don't have any of the, any of the qualities of that. But uh, I mean, no, I mean, the whole idea of Ayn Rand as a cult is, is a little ridiculous when the number one uh, assignment, if you will, that objectivism places on you is to be an independent thinker. Um, it, it's hard to run a cult with a bunch of independent thinkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe that's part of the problem we have. Right? True it's, that. Uh, yeah, there are no commandments in objectivism. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a challenge. And by the way, uh, look up a video of mine. that just uh, It's on Facebook and YouTube about capitalism and the poor. that just went viral for the first time ever. I had a viral video. 4.1 million as of wow. last night. 4.1 million views mm-hmm. within the last like six days it's almost uh, uh, how much our average episode gets so yeah good. you're in a good company good, good. well now now this this will compete but uh, or, you know on average cat video gets which is uh, uh but 4.1 that's uh, i was impressed well i, mean, I have I, the right to I watch def- cat videos till my last day and i'm going to uphold that right it's your freedom yeah you're you're you have the right to be stupid you have a right to be stupid you have a right to waste your time yeah absolutely. dr brooke thank you so much for coming it was a real my pleasure eight ton thanks, thanks for having me, me. See you next week. See you guys. Bye.